don't want to jinx us, so I'm just going to say that possibly, maybe, fall is starting to visit. Uh, we don't know that necessarily, uh, but it does has felt great this weekend. Hopefully you had a chance to get out to enjoy the weather a bit. Um, it's great to see all of you here. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, Emmaus Way is a community of people who gather on Sundays um, and gather throughout the week, uh, a group of people who are devoted to the gospel of Christ and have been captivated by the gospel and seeing where God is at work in our worlds, particularly here in Durham uh, and in the county and in the city and seeing uh, what is going on where God is recreating in our midst and how we might participate in that. Um, we gather on Sunday evenings to listen to one another, uh, read the text together to see how God might be speaking to us. Um, and to sing and to uh, meet at the table with one another where the grace of God is broken uh, and found in the body of Christ. Um, it's also great to have Lolan Hum with us here tonight, Daniel and Laura. It's, uh, Lauren, it's good to see you. Um, you guys still have a record that's out, and you can get access to that record uh, through our website, through the weekly. It's on there, or you can go to your website, which is lolanhum.com. Okay. Ours is... 
What's that? We have some in our car. Or you have some in your car. Okay, yeah. So see them afterward uh, if you're interested in one of their records. Uh, they did a house concert for us a couple weeks ago. It was fantastic. And Joseph, it's great to have you playing uh, as well. So um, anyway, welcome uh, this evening. we got a couple announcements coming up. Um, I just want to go over those real quickly so you'll know. Next week we have a potluck at the Jake's house following the service. We'll do probably a shorter service. It's a no music night. Um, So we'll be gathering quickly, doing a dialogue, uh, engaging with one another. And then we're actually going to move on to the Jake's house, which is just a couple blocks up uh, Watch Street here. um, And we'll gather there for a larger potluck. We're going to be talking about the table and the centrality of the table to how we read text together. So it'll be a nice fit, kind of an extension of our uh, communion table up there, um, and I think uh, it'll, it'll kind of overlap a lot with what we're discussing. Um, so, thinking ahead, if you're planning on bringing something, please, uh, we'd probably usually need a couple veggie things, um, a couple other things. There uh, will be a sign-up list, I think, on the, on the website, so if you would go there, I know we're kind of a last-minute community, and people kind of think on Sunday afternoon what they're going to bring Sunday evening. I'm like that too, but if you can throw something out there just so we know we have a few things. Uh, especially main dishes, that would be fantastic. Um, also, this week coming up on Friday evening, there's a Perspectives, or Saturday, Saturday evening, I'm sorry, Perspectives, and Josh is going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, once a month we get together uh, for a time where we sort of gather around a piece of art. Uh, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's visual art, sometimes it's literature. Um, and we just interpret it together because we feel like that's a sort of core part of what it is we do here. Um, this month we're going to be doing uh, a record called For the Life of the World to Come, which is by a band called the Mountain Goats, which are based here in Durham. Um, we thought it would be an interesting album because each of the songs are based on uh, John Darnielle's reading of a particular scripture, but it's an entirely non-religious take on that scripture. It's sort of life lessons of what it means to be a human being taken from Jewish and Christian scripture. So anyway, I think it speaks to our free-for-all theme of interpreting text together. And uh, 8 o'clock, Saturday night, it's on the weekly, but you can email me, artsandemaisway.net, for uh, any more information. And it's at your place, right? It'll be so, at our place, yeah, yeah, so directions you can find on the website or email Josh. Um, and once again, Perspectives is kind of a uh, group of people that get around to discuss art, uh, different things that are going on. You don't have to have an art degree to do that. Uh, they also like to fellowship with one another and, and do that as well. Um, Also, one other announcement real quickly. I just wanted to make this known to you. Um, Our pub group this summer spent time reading a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And Brett Fox actually emailed me. She's going to be speaking in Wake Forest on October 1st in the evening at 6 p.m. So if you're interested in going to that, uh, please let him know or you can email me. I'll send out an email reminder through the the pub group listserv. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure what part of that that is, but yeah, um, through the pub group listserv. Um, so if you're interested in that, it's October 1st in the evening at 6 p.m. That's a Tuesday. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to look at the book, if you just want to go, you can Google it and find it. It's on kind of incarceration and the, uh, the incarceration in our culture and um, race and different things like that. It's a great read. Um, so if you get a chance, check it out. Uh, anyway, well, uh, Elizabeth, yes. Yeah. Great.
Thank you. Uh, anyway, it's good to see all of you tonight. Tim's going to walk us through some text in a little bit, kind of a hard uh, text uh, uh, to some extent. So be thou, my vision was a great lead up. Uh, when you kind of say, I don't know what's going on here at a certain point, <laughs> we just need vision. Um, so anyway, welcome. It's good to see all of you. Uh, this next song is, is written by Peter Gabriel, and um, <clears throat> we're leaving out the, the bridge section, although the lyrics are printed there.
For those of you that, that don't know us, um, <clears throat> Lauren and I got married about a year and eight months ago, and when we got married, she quit her job and started singing with me, and since then, the music has totally changed, and um, so this, this is a song about identity, <clears throat> as we figured that out together, um, both musically and, uh, and what it means to be married, and, and to not have either of us be diminished, but to, to augment each other.
save the weak and needy Give justice to the weary The wanderer is bleary The sunlight has grown cold This one's for the prisoner For us. I love the echo of that, of, of kind of a, I mean, some of the themes that were very present there are going to be present, I hope, in our conversation tonight. One is very strongly identity of who, what does it mean to be a people and who are we as a people uh, and connecting that to a critical question of the how does God relate to people? What does, in one sense, are there people that are inside? Are there people that are outside? What does it mean to be inside and outside? So we're going to touch on some some big themes today that I think will be uh, will be um, significant for us. So thank you. That was a, that was a great choice. I, I think you guys did that at the the, um, the house show. I think, and it was a great song. I didn't. I did. I, hearing it now again in terms of just thinking about this notion of identity is a was a great hearing of that. So thank you guys for for doing that one again. Hey. Um, as we jump into our conversation tonight, let me give you a couple quick things just as um, a spin-up. We've been talking about um, it, specifically the Bible and, and a, our relationship as a community to reading and interpreting the text. And so it's been a really good conversation. We've... we've um, jumped on three things basically to, to in the last several three or four weeks on this one is we talked several weeks ago about who we are what kind of lenses and experiences do we bring to reading the bible and and um you know that that's a, a point that's often easily overlooked that there's no such thing as an innocent reader of anything we we bring a life uh, to the text. And so we started with that. And then the, a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about this kind of incarnational view of the Bible, of seeing the Bible not just as a, a series of prescriptions that are abstract from our lives, but we better do them. But instead, seeing the Bible as, in many ways, the way it describes itself is 
deeply present in the fabric and contours of the world and in many ways paralleling Jesus' life as, uh, as uh, God and man. Uh, Jesus being in flesh, in the world, uh, living in the world that he did very fully and seeing the scriptures as such. And then um, where, where we've been kind of rounding out of this is talking about this intimate relationship that the scriptures have with communities and with community and, and all kind of getting to where we are now, this whole idea of what does it mean to be a community of people that are reading and interpreting the text. And, and I'll remind you of this for the next several weeks, but we've talked about three communities that are really essential is one reminding ourselves that the scriptures themselves are a community. They speak to each other. They don't fit together like a road map. They are in conversation with each other. In fact, the text we're going to look at today, it would be really easy to find other texts in the Bible that kind of push back on the point of this text. So the scriptures themselves are a community. And then we've been talking a good bit about the fact that the scriptures have been read by communities of people for thousands Thousands of years, the the people of Israel, the church, uh, continuing uh, uh, as Jewish scriptures and as Christian scriptures. And so there's been this history of interpretation that is always part of that. When we read the text, we're stepping into something that people have talked about for thousands of years. And then also we fit into this is that every community of persons that is trying to embody the text with our lives, we in some ways in our embodiments and what we do, we begin to give life to the scriptures. So we read something that says, uh, you know, love your enemies. It's really easy for that to be a simple abstraction of, Ooh, uh, you know, don't like Josh, but I kind of love him because he needs some love. You know, there's, there's some way to read it that way, but as a practicing community of people, it's entirely different because it means that there's some sense of obligation to live and breathe that out. And so that's what we're doing now in this series is talking about how we as a community put ourselves around the Bible and embody it as a text and how we learn to interpret it as a community together. And last week we did a text, this week we're going to do another text that I hope will be interesting for us as a community. It's not one that there's a consensus reading, so no one is going to be able to say, this is definitively what this means. But I hope that we'll be able to kind of liberate our voices tonight to circle around Romans 9. Um, Before we do that, and the reason I gave that little quick introduction is um, in the break, if you want to, um, and, and Read the text. Uh, Take a chance to kind of read a couple of the paragraphs that I've pulled out of chapter 9. So as you're moving around, know that it's there for you to check out. And I'll have somebody read it also in just a moment or two. But please stand up and greet the people that you're around. Uh, If you're around somebody you don't know, please introduce yourself. Offer them the peace of Christ. Uh, It's a great chance to grab some some coffee or a, a... Those cookies were really good, by the way. I sampled them. Uh, So do that, and I'll call us back in about two minutes, and we'll jump back into Romans 9. So let me um, let me throw out. I wrote these in the uh, the weekly. And by the way, if you don't get the weekly, let us know that if you want to get that. We send out a weekly email. A lot of times, there's something related to the dialogue on Sunday nights that we throw out there for you to kind of have, be aware of. Something to read in advance. Those type of things. But. I threw out a couple of questions. I want to remind you of those questions uh, tonight uh, because I'm going to get right to them after we read the text. Um, So the first question is this. From from the tradition that you've come from, and that may be... probably for most people inside of a church tradition, a, a denomination, a theological strain, a, a something. 
Uh, you, you, know, you might say, I'm a Pentecostal, or you might say, I'm a Baptist, or you know, whatever tradition that you're a part of. Or if you, if you are not part of a Christian tradition, uh, haven't grown up in that, but whatever, wherever you come from, um, I want you to, to ponder the question of how has that tradition or your perspective handled the question of insiders and outsiders to God's people or God's grace? Uh, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of different answers to that, but how has your experience, your tradition uh, affected your thoughts about that? Because we're going to read a text that is laden with that theological question. Um, and then the second question is this. Um, um, from your own experiences, your own reflection, and that reflection can include prayer, anything that you do that's a part of your spiritual discipline, how do you resolve or think about the question of inside and outside? And, and if you've been a really astute Bible reader, and most of us aren't, but if you, you, know, if you read the Bible all the way through on this, you understand this is a, a place where the scriptures kind of speak to each other. There, there are things that kind of move in one direction and things that move in the other. But we're going to look at a text that's, that's famous for that. And that's, that's uh, it's short, it's part of a longer text of Romans 9 through 11. But we're going to look primarily at chapter 9 tonight. So those are the two questions that are coming your way. That will give you a, a chance to, um, to kind of warm that up. One of the things I really sensitive to, by the way, I was thinking about this last week, is um, I say this every every premarital counseling I've ever done, I always make the point that in almost every relationship, there's a person that's a quick processor. They think fast, they talk fast, they think fast, they go, and then there's a person that likes to ponder things and kind of sit down, and, and if, if not properly refereed, you know what happens, right? The quick processor wins every argument, every fight, every moment. And you think about every relationship you've been in, that happens, right? And then there's a person who, and it sounds like they're being you know, wrong, but on two days after that, they think about it and they go, yeah, I'm really pissed off about that conversation we had two days ago where you maneuvered around me like the Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington Generals. And so one of the things that I'm really sensitive about, and I'm, I'm going to start sending more questions out earlier to you guys, is that I don't want our dialogues to replicate what I would say is bad marital practice or relational practice or roommate practice. You know, um, the... the um, is this idea of the people who think quick, talk quick, that sort of thing, are the only ones who speak. So I'm going to work harder at making sure that some of you have four or five days to ponder what you want to say about that. So hold me accountable to that. So, uh, so anyway, that's the idea of sending you questions earlier. But um, if somebody would, I'd love for you to listen to this. This is only a selection of this. Would somebody read our text tonight from Romans 9? It's actually two chunks of what is a, a longer chapter. And I'll help you with some of the parts that are not there. But somebody go for that. What's printed here? Yes, please. Thank you. Romans 9, 6 through 18, verses 30 through 33. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. That means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. 
Something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by her husband, our ancestor Isaac Rode, even before they had been born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's promise of election might continue. Not by works, but by his call, she was told. The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name shall be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. What then are we to say, Gentiles, who did not strive for righteousness, have attained it, that is righteousness through faith? But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, and as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone which the people will stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Thank you. So, um, you know, we have a gathering every Tuesday, about five or six of us circle around the text and we start interpreting it as a group together. And what you hear in the dialogue is comes out of, or at least begins in that conversation, often comes out of that conversation as well. And uh, Dan, I'm going to excite you on this one. Um, There's a a really funny part of this text. Look at verse 13 and 14, the way they fit together. Um, The... um, Let's, let's put it like, let's take God out of it because sometimes we don't laugh at God as much as we should. So uh, let's do this like the efforts. Uh, so uh, this is Dave and Elizabeth over here, and their, uh, their kids are, are Anna and Everett are their first two. Gracie's the last one, but we'll use Anna and Everett here. So let's say Dave and Elizabeth are having a conversation, and Dave says, you know, uh, um, the elder shall serve the younger. Uh, as it's written, I have loved Everett, but I have hated Anna. Um, and, and then Elizabeth kind of pitches in there and says, hey, I mean, That seems like that's incredibly unjust, Dave, and you might need to pick up your parenting a little bit. That's not what we're looking for at the Ephraim household. And Dave ponders it. He thinks about it. He kind of goes, oh, yeah, it's a... It was a really good point. And, and let me console you with these words uh, just to show you that I've really heard you, honey. Um, I'll have mercy on whoever I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. And, and uh, enough talk here. I've decided. So, you know, you read this and if you like, you know, I know we have trouble laughing at God sometimes at these things. But it, you, know, you read this and you kind of go, whoa, what? What's in this text? I mean, what, what's being said here? Because uh, if we took the parts on, we wouldn't be comfortable hearing that from ourselves or from each other, right? 
So it's back on your court now, uh, and I want to give you a chance, and you're not expected to be a Romans scholar. In fact, we did Romans about four years ago, and I don't think I have ever done so much reading to get ready for dialogues, because in many ways, the way Romans was read 30 years ago is not how it's read now, and everybody in between has an opinion. And thank God, my favorite like Romans scholar, uh, uh, Doug Campbell over at Duke, uh, showed up one week after we did this series. I mean, he I was like, oh my gosh, if you'd come in the week before, I would have said, hey, it's music night. Uh, and <laughs> Hum is going to play their whole CD, every song, two or three times. Uh, uh, we're going to get every word down because I'm not talking about this. There is not a consensus about uh, some of these difficult texts, but they're really important questions that come out of these texts. So back to you. From your tradition, whether it's inside a Christian tradition or outside a Christian tradition, um, how have you uh, been kind of taught to think about the question of insiders and outsiders? When we read something com- uncomfortable like, uh, I have loved Jacob but hated Esau, and, and some of the choices that are going on in this text, what, 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 what say ye traditions uh, represent? Sure. So that's a that's a perspective that that's some traditions are very tightly defined about who is a recipient of God's grace and who is not. And actually, we made the comment of this in the book that one of the one of the greatest arguments for community interpretation of circling around a text and reading together is in the different model, the authoritarian interpretation of I'm going to tell you what this means, uh, get your notebooks out kind of way. The problem with that is that there's somebody like across the street saying the same thing and, and hopefully you don't ever speak to the people that go to that tradition because they've just been told just the opposite. So it's a, it's a great point. Other people, uh, you, as you turn to kind of your nurturer traditions on this question of inside, outside, uh, recipient of grace, loved by God, not loved by God, what, 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 what do you think? In the tradition I grew up in, um, it was all about prayer. If you had prayed prayer, Okay, and so, and I would say that's probably a, you know, a, a common, there's a group of us that kind of grew up in that kind of, uh, we're kind of post-fundamentalists, but we, you know, I had, it was a little black called the Sinner's Bible, baby, and let me tell you, I could do a lot with the Sinner's Bible, because there was, and there were really, and this is one of the things that we're doing, is that we're four or five texts that were absolutely central to that 
text. Not that it was wrong, it's just that we said those four or five verses are so important that everything else relates to them. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Well, this verse, um, let's see, uh, after verse 30, it clearly says that the way you become an insider or accepted by God or whatever is through faith. I mean, faith is the key to becoming a member of the family to be to be an accepted. So you got to believe in something. you got to participate in something. And this text doesn't seem to mince words on that. that, that and that, and, and we'll put that in a wider context, but that faith is privileged throughout the reading of Romans 9, actually 9 through 11, in a very significant way. Absolutely. And I think that would, and in some ways that nuances both points because I know in my tradition we were, the, the right prayer and the right stuff was a little bit more of a talisman than an act of faith. And so, you know, there's, you know, those are a little bit different. Other people, how did you, yeah, Brandon. This is man who's taught at Fordham, so you've you've been around some people who didn't assume the the yeah. Protestant perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Keep going. And then, uh, so yeah, I was going to bring up that I'm teaching a course on the Reformation right now. Kind of dreaded. Uh, we read Luther um, <laughs> lectures on the Romans, uh, on Romans, and, and freedom of the Christian. To say that I find Luther more winsome than I've ever found him before on this. And that I realized, you know, as, as the Reformation kind of got going, a lot of people wanted to push this to to quickly define who was in and who was out, both in, in his home city and in other cities. And and he was pretty uh, he kind of stuck to this text to say that um, this text teaches us the freedom of the Christian, and that I'm not going to go back to the law. And I think his emphasis was that you know you proclaim the gospel and then let it let it have its effect, and we don't do this through forcing others. We don't do this through overly defining who's in and out. Not to say that actually I've, I've come to the last few weeks of reading this with students um, uh, find Luther to be more free on this to kind of show that. Um, Sure. And you know, it's interesting, Brandon, you raise a point that, I mean, there might be a natural tendency for us to say, well, let's just appeal to Jesus on this question and that'll help us out a lot. And if there ever was, you know, that feeling you had when you asked your parents, like, hey, can I 
sleepover, you know, at Luke's house on Friday night while they had company over. And Luke had just been arrested the week before, you know, and the, the parents didn't want to like say, you know, no, you can't do that. Cause the, you know, you know we, we all ask questions that were unwelcome of our parents or friends or that sort of thing. Jesus treats that question like that question in the sense that every time somebody came up to him and said, Hey, what do I have to do to be saved? It got tense really fast there. So to some degree, there isn't like this Jesus corpus where it's settled uh, to some degree. And I, I think that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, where does, where does freedom fit in? Where does, where, do, you know, what, how, and, and you raise the second point is that as, as people who've been a part of a traditions of faith, we've read this tradition really differently. I had a, a seminary professor, I think I've quoted this guy before, he's a huge uh, scholar of the text, well-known Pentecostal who was received in both liberal and conservative circles. And back when I went to school, that was kind of the big divide, liberals and conservatives, that sort of thing. And he used to say, it's really easy when they ask me to preach uh, in a conservative church, I used to just preach the gospel because I, I always get the sense that conservatives have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when I'm in a liberal church, I usually preach Paul because it, somehow they've maneuvered the lectionary so that they've never read Paul. And so to some degree, it does show that our traditions have produced a strong sense of editing of what we're, we're comfortable. Now, let me make you personalize this question a little bit. Thank you, Brandon. Um, and here's the personal side of this. How do you personally process? You're reading the Bible and you're coming across a challenging text like Esau I've hated and Jacob I've loved and, and uh, this kind of language of choice and election or anything else in the Bible that's uncomfortable with you. How, how do you process that from your own experiences? your own prayer, your own reflection, your own relational lives? How, how do you work through it? Maybe there should be a bit of nonsense in that question, because I want Tim to think I'm one of the people who find If I answer quickly, it's because I thought about them already um, in another context. <laughs> <laughs> just, just teasing, uh, I think one of the problems with processing anything like this passage is when you become aware that there's a kind of long history behind it, and that people have been having arguments about text for a long time, then it's, it's, it's not always... And if you don't... Like, like, I don't think it's possible to step outside of some interpretive tradition. You said there's no innocent readers. But is there a way to unlearn, maybe, some of the ways we've, we've read this passage? So is going to point out with this passage how it's really not about individuals, which way... Most of our traditions would have read this about who individually is in and who's out. You actually could see a bubble. How many people saw a bubble over Trigger's head? I actually was reading the bubble over Trigger's head. Uh, you were kind of squirming a little bit there, Trigger. Go ahead. Keep <laughs> Everybody has an extra five minutes today. <laughs> Go, of individuals, is an individual in or out, but, you know, is, it's about Israel and the church. Um, and so you might argue, well, who's in Israel and who's in the church? But if, if it's not so much about individuals, but about these histories of these peoples, then to read this about, well, are you in, in or, or out is actually to mislead. And, and I really appreciate when somebody like Trigger makes those kind of arguments, because it helps me unlearn a little the things I've, the ways in which I've had to to read things, but I'm really not sure how to unlearn a lot 
so that I can re-appreciate the text. And I'm not convinced by uh, that, that uh, going to divinity school would help me. So you, so you need to convince me it work, or you know, we can have some other ideas about how can I can unlearn some of the, the reflexive ways. It's probably better to go and read another text, which I haven't read, heard preached on very often. So I might actually you know, might get something more out of it than this, where I don't know how to unlearn what I've we know, you're, Andrew, you raised something here, and, and we don't, you know, it would be almost utopian to imagine that we could get to this space in like 30 minutes, except that we do this every week, so we do sometimes do that. But if you'd gone to divinity school, the most important choice of how you would understand it would have been the divinity school, Right. I used to, back in the day when I did youth ministry, I, I used to think one of the things I hated most is I you know, worked with students and a lot of times, you know, every year I'd probably deal with somebody who had an eating disorder. And parents would come, we'd talk about eating disorder, and they'd basically say, where should I go to get help? Now, this probably isn't true now. This is 20 years dated material. But if I kind of pushed them to Duke to get help, Back in the day, Duke was a force feed type of environment. They would feed people till they got to a certain weight, and then they would and, and, and then they would deal with psychological issues that were the antecedent to an eating disorder. Carolina was just the opposite. They wouldn't get their weight up to a certain point. They would start kind of a, a dialogical process, even though somebody's weight might be dangerously low, right? And I used to think, you know what? Here's how much I know about eating disorders. But because someone is asking me if I were to influence them to Duke or UNC, I have just made a really complex treatment decision that I imagine doctors argue over. So to some degree, um, not to dismirch everybody here who's had a theological degree, but obviously where you step into that, there's a, a Duke way of reading things. There was a Gordon Conwell way of reading things. There's a Yale way. Well, Duke and Yale, they kind of love each other. Uh, there's a, uh, but there, you know, there's, there's, so that isn't always the, the outlet. And then you raise a question that there are things that we bring to the text that we don't necessarily know that we bring to the text. If you've hung around a Mass way, you pick up pretty quickly that we're sensitive to the fact that coming out of the Reformation and the, the tradition of being Americans and our, pers- our, our perspective on democracy is we're very individualistic. So we're really quick to read. And I know not all of us are Americans, but we are really quick to read the text from a very individualistic perspective rather than a community perspective. And so uh, that's why Trigger started to squirm a little bit because Trigger knows that there's, there's a way, there's a default that we have that we might miss something that's important in the text. Yeah, Jordan. said, you know, you don't worry about that because you were born this low, so you're just a Christian. 
And so then I was reflective on myself and realized I was not a Christian in my activities because I didn't measure up. So I just walked away. And so it was a, a long process, about three or four years, of really cementing back and getting past this sort of division uh, as an either-or type of verse. But I just was, I've always kind of come up against that, how do you know you are in or out? And that's such a holdover from my, my tradition of measuring up to a good standard. Amazing. Well, and you look at, I was looking at CNN today, I don't know if anybody was watching the news today, but they were doing a religious map of the Middle East of the various uh, Islamic and Christian and Jewish divisions. And the political divisions lined up pretty closely to the religious divisions. So one of the things that you would hear pretty quickly is this idea that, you know, as religious people, we've read texts like this with an impulse of saying, you know, if I don't have to deal with Dan Rhodes because I read this and he's not in, I don't have to deal with Dan Rhodes. Or my politics can in some way uh, be put into place in such a place that certain people are privileged over others. So that's a really awkward part of our history is that uh, our biblical text, our faith has been easily manipulated. It's a question I deal with in a cultural studies program every day where the assumption is not what we do. In fact, I was saying, I was, I'm taking a class at Duke Divinity School and it was in a recitation and everybody was just kind of emitting faith out of their conversation. I was like, this is like whiplash because I'm coming from a setting where faith is the thing that makes us so easily manipulated to prejudice other people. It's kind of this predisposition to exclude somebody is, is, is what faith plays out. And now I'm here, I'm in an environment where everybody's making an assumption that their faith gives them a perspective that makes them compassionate on other people. And so that such is the great division of the world that we live in. And it's played out writ large in nations and, you know, so these texts have lived, they've played in, in the life of our world as in the way that we've read them for thousands of years. Great point. One more person, somebody else that kind of, how do you process these texts of inside, outside, loved, hated, Sort of liked. Yeah, uh, Dan and I were just saying, like, I, I think Jordan raises this interesting point that maybe the inside-outside, either-or thing doesn't even cleanly divide among persons because there are parts of me that I want to be inside and parts that I want to be outside or vice versa. <laughs> so they haven't made a comment that's like, well, I'm sort of outside, but my Facebook self is the most pious person you've ever met. You know, yeah. So there's this projected self. Are you the guy that sends me Bible verses like every 30 seconds on Facebook? Stop doing that. Yeah, so I think reminding ourselves of our own sort of dividedness. There's a, there's a book called A Thousand Plateaus written by these two French philosophers. But the first line is one of my all-time favorites because it says, uh, We wrote this book together. But since each of us was several, there was already quite a crowd. Yeah. Negotiating <laughs> this like crowd of people that were in a room and there were only two of them. <laughs> yeah. Sort of helps us to remember all of the different selves that we're bringing to the table when we have a conversation like inside outside. And it's interesting that if you were somebody were my elevator answer to the question of what what are you doing in a doctoral program is the short answer is identity theory and one of the things that's most interesting and I was trained particularly to do youth ministry in uh, you know the seventies eighties nineties that sort of thing and one of the things that was gospel not I'm talking about not, not biblical gospel but it was psychological social ministry counseling gospel was that we had unified identities that that we were 
we were one person. There was a, that, you know, you were, we're talking about Elizabeth Cobb. There is a definition. There's an elevator answer of who Elizabeth Cobb is. Uh, and, and it wasn't really until the late 80s, early 90s, where we started to say, you know, this whole question of a, a, an entirely consistent identity not only doesn't seem to be true, but it seems to put this incredible burden on people. But we did a whole ministry kind of overlay on that. To, you know, you, if you were a youth ministry kid, you probably heard lots of lots of pressure to to kind of be consistent among yourself, to to to, to integrate your life, so to speak. And you guys remember um, when I had Doug Hammett come and speak here from from North Raleigh uh, Community Church. When I spoke to their church, they asked me to speak about something that I was doing academically from a theological perspective. So I did identity theory, and they were really uncomfortable with that because they had a lot of psychologists in the room that said, you know, when you're starting to talk about kind of multiple uh, practices of people, that's what we deal with in a therapeutic setting. So uh, Elizabeth's nodding. I mean, the disciplines that we bring to this, religious historian, theologian, musicologist, uh, theologian, uh, psychologist, uh, you know, all the things that you guys do really affect the way we read this text. And in some ways, one of the things that we're laying out, I'm going to give you a word or two on Romans 9, but one of the things we're laying out here is this is why it's critically significant that there are conversations and communities of people, people who want to practice the text and embody the biblical text, but that we talk about these things together because we bring a background, we bring a package to any text like this. This might be the very thing that made you when you were 20 years old say, hey, if it's between being faithful and being a good person, I'm choosing being a good person and I'm ditching this whole faith thing. Or this might have been the thing that that you pushed as hard as you possibly could to somehow understand the kind of faith that seems to be so significant in this text. Those are two legitimate but entirely opposite perspectives uh, or, or differential perspectives on this text. So let me grab your text here. Let's uh, let's do a couple quick things. That's fantastic. I really appreciate the words on this. I, I'm going to cite a few people on this. One of them is N.T. Wright. Uh, I did some kind of back reading. And, and one of the things that's hard about the Bible is that we are reading something in someone else's text. I mean, th- th- you know, you ever cracked a joke publicly and then you realized, it happens to me all the time because I'm around young people like you. I make some great Gilligan's Island joke or something like that. And you kind of go, oh, is that a television show? Or, you know, was that like, you know, was that like one of those uh, motion picture things back in the, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, as time passes, we don't understand each other's cultural illustrations. Um, this text is filled with cultural stuff. That when people read it, they kind of snickered and they said, ooh, yeah, you're telling my story? But we don't hear it as our story in some ways. So, look, here's just a few things to think about that I think might, that would, would help us in understanding this. The very first part of this, look at Romans uh, 9, 6 through uh, 15. Um, we get to a couple of places that are uncomfortable in biblical history. Abraham can't have a child with his wife, Sarah, and was which was sexually common in the day, probably doesn't happen around your house uh, or in your friendships or relationships very much. But in the patriarchy of the day, it was not sexual unfaithfulness for the, the household, the, the head of the household 
was allowed to pretty much have sex with any women who were in the household at that point because they were his possessions, maidservants, uh, whoever. And so Abraham and Sarah basically say, we can't have kids. God told us to have kids. God is disappointed with us because we're supposed to have kids. We're not having kids. And she said, here's the maidservant. Come on, Abraham. Uh, employ your rights as the head of the household here. And, and, and so they have another kid. They have a kid, Ishmael. And then the son of the promise comes as Isaac. And this is kind of dysfunctional history. And Isaac is the loved one because it's the one that God had in mind. So Ishmael thanks for shopping, but it's not going to happen for you, buddy. And, and, then, uh, and then you think, well, okay, that, we understand that. That was kind of, you know, this is us thinking. That wasn't appropriate. Uh, he had sex with a maidservant. Uh, surely God can't bless maidservant sex, kind of like uh, other like good sex, right? And so, and so we, can't, we can't like that, right? And, but then the story says, oh, if you're, you're, you know, if you're struggling with that, but here's what happened in the next generation. They had twins. They were two kids that came out, not at the same time, but fairly close to each other. And, and they both could have some claim to love. Uh, but in this case, the choice was made against culture that the youngest would be the one that got the big deal out of the thing. And so to some degree, what's, what's the reading of this is very Jewish. We're being told, you know, in the story, if you think it's just God selecting certain peoples, so Ishmael represents a, a people and, and, uh, and Isaac represents a people, it's, not, it's worse than that. God isn't just kind of working with one person, one people against another. He's actually making choices within families, between twin brothers. And so now we're thoroughly traumatized. So the story starts us out with the very beginning of Israel. And then the story, this is, I think I cut this off from you, but um, this is Romans 9 like 14 and on, is the story starts picking up some more characters that people in Israel would get. We start talking about Pharaoh, and now we realize that, hey, this is, God has somehow rescued his people from people that had put them into slavery. And then we get this really kind of awkward passage about potter and clay. And you know, I start reading about pottery and clay, and I remember art class in the seventh grade where my teacher looked at me and said, is that the best you can do? <laughs> it's just not a great memory for me. But, but in this sense, there's this awkward moment that God is, is fashioning a, a world and he's making things. And God is the potter and we're the clay. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, Jewish readers would have understood there's several significant biblical texts. Um, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, Jeremiah 18, Isaiah 64. Their prophets talked a lot about this notion of God fashioning a people out of clay. I'll just read you one little snippet, the Jeremiah 18 one. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just as the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. So the text is talking about kind of the history of Israel from Pharaoh to the prophets. And what an amazing point, right? So we don't, still don't get the point, but they get the point. 
Oh, the reworking of the clay wasn't good. That was a people that was entirely unfaithful to God. And so exile came, that, 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 that the plan of their being in the land was interrupted. It was, it was like clay. It was mashed back together and refashioned into something new. And so the, the Jewish reader of this or the hearer of this realizes, oh, we're not just starting with God working among the first, the first people, Abraham and his children and grandchildren. Now, this has gone on for quite some time. Um, and then we get this idea of, and, and you're not, you don't have this, but the section that I cut out talks about a remnant of people. Now, we heard that remnant stuff, and that was really, really, really frightening stuff. I heard a lot of sermons about the remnant of God with the strong implication that most of you aren't part of that because we know Ben Haas has been sinning all week long and, and everybody else. But one of the things that they heard that is, is there's this allusion to the fact that if God had just kind of let them go on their way, there wouldn't have been a remnant. There would have been kind of a Sodom and Gomorrah type of Humanic implosion, so to speak. And so the remnant was a mercy thing to them. It was this idea that God kept working through them, kept finding faith, kept working through that. Um, And then what we get at the very end of this is uh, we get from, we've gone from Moses and, I mean, excuse, yeah, from Abraham to Moses to the prophets to the exile. And then, hey, Israel, post exile, there's nothing like having, hey, a 10,000 square foot house. And making a few bad investments and having to downsize to a studio apartment. You're living in the studio apartment and you're remembering the 10,000 square foot house and it's not so great. Israel after exile was in not so great of a studio apartment. In fact, they couldn't even figure out how to lock the door so their neighbors would just come in the apartment and grab their stuff all the time. It was not a pleasant time for Israel. Um, But one of the things that, that pops out of this is this realization that in this text the whole point of the progression was the coming of a Christ. Uh, that, and, and, and I cut this off and I was smart enough to do this. We'll go back and read Romans 10.4. Um, I'll, I'll read this to you. But it kind of is a culminating part of this argument. It says, For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So to some degree, this text is, and, and think about this. I'm, I'm ashamed to say it, but I think probably... Um, uh, women might be in the category of having a conversation with somebody who who was male and kind of saying, you know what, we've been talking about something for about 30 minutes and it hasn't dawned on you yet that it wasn't about you. (laughs) And so in some ways, we read this text and we come to the realization, oh, wait a minute, this wasn't really about us. You know, we're, we're reading this as the church kind of going, okay, how, where does it explain that we're in charge? But in reality, this was a long history of Israel, and it was raising a very important theological point, the accusation that potentially God isn't faithful and that God's word doesn't count. And so what we got in this text was a long history of God's work with Israel with a couple of bullet points that jump out of it besides anything else you can find there. One of them is that God doesn't give up. That God continues to work and the word of God is spoken again and again and again and it bears fruit and it creates life. And what Brandon was saying is, I think is a big part of this text, is it produces freedom. So to some degree, we're supposed to read this text and kind of go, oh my goodness, 
we're the outsiders. This is God working through a people. But this coming of the Christ gave us the opportunity to be part of the work of God. And, and we might even write, read 2 Corinthians or a few other texts that push the point that there might not even be an outside. So to some degree, um, we are reading a story here that's quick for us to come with our kind of individualism. It's quick for us to come with our kind of Gentileness, to, to come with people who, who really weren't in the original story, but think that it's about us. What we, what we find here is an incredible story about God's faithfulness of Israel. And, and, and to the point of, of even words like, no matter what you did, I'm still with you. I am still working. I'm still redeeming. I am still redeeming the world that you're in. So part of the movement of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a defense of the goodness of God. The irony is, our quick reading of it is this is the indictment on the goodness of God rather than a long story talking about how God stays in there. Not only with God's people, but what was the whole point of Israel in the first place? To bless all of the nations through them. And, and when they failed most miserably, we looked at it last week when we looked at the Jubilee. When they failed to be generous to the nations around them, they failed in with a whole purpose of being a chosen people. Now, there is a million, we could like get in our cars and go to Bull McCabe's and we could talk for the next 20 days on this text. There are many, many nuances, many conversations, many challenges that can be made. But I want you to walk away with this today with a couple of realizations. Understanding that we desperately need each other to read the text together. We desperately need each other's experiences. We need somebody who's on the outside to say, hey, this might not have been about you. Uh, we need people who've come to it in a way that was inspiring. People who came to it that was a burden. We need all of our voices. And we also need to realize that none of us has an experience that entirely unlocks the text. In this case, maybe none of us has the predominant experience that really got the, the, the narrative that N.T. Wright and a few other people are saying are unfolding in the life of this text. So this is one example. Next week we're going to talk about how our practices affect the reading of the text. And Dan is going to lead us on the whole idea of how the table inspires our reading of the text. But what I want you to be encouraged in, that it matters. It matters that we read the text together. I want you to be invited to say, I don't see it that way. I want you to be invited to say, this text has inspired me. I'm, I'm sensitive to the way that it's hurt you, but it's helped me. Our voices are absolutely critical to finding the word of God, in this case, in a text that was couched in a historical story that was one that we're not entirely familiar with. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move to confession and absolution. God, we thank you for the word of God, and we pray with that sense of anticipation that it tells a story of your mercy, your grace, your redemption, and even your recreation of this world. May we, by listening to each other, embracing each other, uh, find that story within the written words. May it inspire us. May it move us to practices of grace and mercy. May it move us to practices of courage. May it uh, give us the ability to truly embody the love that's told in this story. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
peach black night with gossamer wings beating now just around the edges a golden albatross burst onto the sea like arrows filled with fire poking holes in my dreams making way
this week, but we witnessed a miracle. Literally, people will be writing about this, and there is no way to explain it other than a miracle. Those of you that know me know that I love to pick on conservatives. Tonight, I'm going to pick on liberals a little bit, because an amazing, an amazing thing happened this week. I don't know if you caught it, but despite, and he's still seething about this, despite all best intentions and, and, and promises, John Kerry stumbled into peace <laughs> some way blundering his way through a public press conference and opening a way to peace. And of all people to come in and then be the one to provide the possibility of peace, Putin steps in to provide the way to peace. It's miraculous. There's no other way to classify it, to describe it, than that is absolutely miraculous. Now, I'm not downplaying the atrocities and the things that are going on in Syria, but if you've been paying attention to that story, I think in some ways it represents our passage ever so much tonight. That in some sense, just as Paul's writing to this church in Romans where there's some fighting between uh, the Jewish converts and the early Christians, he's trying to help them sort out this fact that, hey, actually... You know, who's in, who's out. What's actually happened is that God is working in a way that nobody would have foreseen, that nobody could have seen coming, that nobody could have anticipated. And by some chance way, the Gentiles, which is you and me, have actually stumbled into God's promise and God's gift. That God is a God of massive surprises. Of miraculous surprises. That looking at things, if we try to read what is going on off the face of things, if it's just so simple and plain as to who's in, who's out, what we always find is that God is working behind the scenes and scrambling the whole mix up. And that the end is something much more, much bigger, much larger than we ever could have anticipated. As we come to the table tonight, I think actually those, those two songs that we just sang are a perfect way to set us up. And if you're, if you're not paying attention to the liturgy, one of the things that we do here is through song, we go through confession and absolution. And I think they set us up perfectly with this sense of longing, 
of mourning almost, of wanting to know what is going on. And then also this absolution of, I love that last verse where the arrow is shot into the void. And I, I, I can't talk about it because it doesn't do justice to, to what you, you do singing it. But that a forest begins to grow up out of that void. And that, that to some extent what we're articulating there is that God is a God who's full of surprises. Working and moving in ways that we never could have anticipated. And as we come to the table tonight, we come with both a sense of, hey, mourning, we, we know our world is aching. We know there are ways in which our lives around us are aching. We can see that. But we also are trusting in the fact that God is at work somewhere in this world. That God is at work, not just somewhere, that God is at work everywhere in this world. And that he's at work in a way that's larger and greater than we could anticipate. When we come to break bread with one another, to celebrate, to celebrate the body of Christ with one another, we celebrate the fact that God has included us in. That we almost stumbled into this thing that's called the Christian life. And that as we celebrate around the table with one another, we see and name that grace in one another's lives where we might not be able to see it ourselves, where we might not be able to, to anticipate it, where we might not be able to locate it. We can name it for each other when we say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, receiving that as the grace of God into our lives, knowing that God is at work and that God is doing something larger than we could have imagined. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come, break bread with one another, share it with one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that, as I just said, in the recognition that God's grace is amongst us. Not so we can hold on to it and cluster around it and talk about how great we are, but that we can recognize that somehow having stumbled into it, we then can be ministers of that grace to those who are in need, and to those that we come in contact with. I invite you now to the table.